0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to today's seminar. We're very fortunate to meet in these lovely surroundings of Rhodes House, where Adam von Trott was, I believe, the first scholar from Germany to come as a Rhodes Scholar following the First World War. And we're grateful to the warden for inviting us here today. And we've been hugely encouraged by the interest in the seminar when we set out on this path some months ago. We thought, we might get 20 people. So it's marvellous to have something like 150. And we're very specially honoured to have with us today Dr. Rudolf Adam, who is the um, Minister and Deputy Head of Mission at the German Embassy and currently the Chargé d'Affaires. We also have... I want to say... um, Dr. Adam is coming home because I think he was a a Rhodes Scholar here in his own time. We also welcome Mrs. Christine Dalby who is the representative of the European Commission in London and she has been very helpful in supporting this event. I should especially like to mention a number of visitors who have come from Germany. Dorothea Engelhardt who represents the Adam von Trott Stiftung at Imthausen, and she has brought a number of leaflets about the Stiftung, which you can find on the welcome desk at reception. And then there's Annette Schmidt-Klugmann, whose ma- mother Barbara and late father were early supporters of the appeal in Germany. Excuse me. We, I was expecting, although I have not met him yet, Friedrich Trott, who is Adam's great-nephew. Are you here, Friedrich? Yes, welcome. Glad to see you. Glad to see you. It's good to have this strong link with the von Trott family. We have Professor Adolf Quad and I think 35 students from Göttingen University where Adam studied before coming to Oxford and we also welcome a group of students, all German students, from St Clair's Hall in Oxford who are doing the International Baccalaureate in preparation for university studies. Now all this has been arranged by the Adam von Trott appeal committee and on your seats you'll find a flyer giving quite a bit of information about Anne von Trott and the nature of the appeal. So I won't say too much about that. What we have been able to do is to establish a scholarship to bring a student from Germany to study for a postgraduate degree for two years in Oxford at Mansfield College. Our first scholar, Diana Kirster was appointed in 2010. She completed her degree, has spent a year in Paris with the OECD and is back in Oxford now studying for her doctorate. Unfortunately, she can't be with us today, but we have with us our present scholar, Bernhard Clem von Hohenberg, who came up to the platform just now and sorted out the technology. (laughs) So he's a clever man, you see. And we're very proud of Diana and very proud of Bernard. And we regard this scholarship as a small, perhaps, but significant contribution to Anglo-German relations. We're always looking for further support for the memorial appeal. And I'm going to stop for a moment so that our treasurer... Mr. John Wilborn can say just a few words about what we're doing and what we hope to do. John.
1: Your Excellency, a Warden, a Principal of uh, Mansfield College, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the comment that the Treasurer would like to say a few words is not likely to raise a tremendous cheers from an audience, uh, <coughs> because in the end, uh, everyone knows what the Treasurer is about. So what I'd like to do is to make my remarks very brief. My first remarks are, however, addressed to thanking you all, both for your attendance here today uh, and for your continuing support of the appeal. Uh, from the Treasurer's point of view, uh, sorry, from the Treasurer's point of view, this has been a, a quite a good week, actually, uh, including two very nice uh, donations from Germany one of which for 500 euros which will be very much uh, appreciated Uh, originally uh, it had been our intention in the steering group uh, to uh, raise uh, an endowment fund with which to uh, fund our scholarships Uh, unfortunately we set about this in a time when uh, uh, world finances etc etc were not that brilliant so we settled what I call a revenue fund. Now, uh, all of you will know, I'm sure, that revenue funds need constant feeding. Uh, and uh, I'd last like to say how grateful I am, uh, as the treasurer, that I am continuing to to uh, receive uh, small and large donations from uh, our supporters. However, if you feel you would like to make a small, regular donation, then that would be incredibly valuable to us and we'd very much appreciate it. And if anybody here present wants to uh, speak about that, you'll find me around here for the rest of the day. Finally, I'd like to say that I have been in contact with uh, both of uh, Adam von Trott's daughters uh, and they have asked me to pass on their very best wishes to all the people here present. Uh, They're particularly pleased that uh, Friedrich has actually made it from the University of Buckingham today uh, to attend. Uh, I think he might have needed a bit of prompting from his aunt, but we'll leave that to to him to uh, justify. I hope he and you enjoy this event. Uh, We are, uh, let us say the steering committee, a pretty amateur about Organising such an event, and we hope that in the end you will find that it's been an interesting, thought provoking, and enjoyable day. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, John. Now, before I introduce the speakers for the first session, there's just a couple of items to mention. Uh, following the seminar, We've arranged a pilgrimage to view some of the Adam von Trott papers in the archives of Balliol College, and also the inscription in Mansfield College Chapel. Numbers for this are limited, but there are spaces still, so if you would like to join the pilgrimage, please sign up at the welcome desk. Then at 6.45, there will be a short service in commemoration of Adam von Trott in the chapel of Balliol College in Broad Street. Numbers for this are not restricted, and everyone is invited to attend. Now, to the theme of the seminar Britain and Germany in Europe, what prospects? I think it would be true to say that Adam von Trot himself was an Anglophile. One of his biographers, Kenneth Sears, who is with us today, reminds me that Adam had American ancestry. His great-grandfather was the first Chief Justice of the United States and two of Adam's aunts lived in England. He himself I think would have been an enthusiastic participant in today's event as he believed strongly in Europe as a family of nations, all having their national autonomy but sharing a common European identity. If he'd survived the catastrophes of the first half of the 20th century, I'm sure he would have been a leading figure in working for the new Europe, though perhaps not an uncritical friend of Europe. Now to start our exploration of this seminar, we are honored to have as our first two speakers Lord Hannay of Chiswick and Professor David Marquand. Lord Hannay had a distinguished career as a British diplomat. He took part in the negotiations for Britain's entry into the European Communities. Later he was Minister at the British Embassy in Washington, then Britain's Ambassador and Permanent Representative to the European Commission in Brussels, and then Ambassador and permanent representative to the United Nations in New York. In retirement, he's been active in many fields, including Pro-Chancellor of the University of Birmingham and a member of the House of Lords Select Committee on the European Union. Professor Marquand, who will respond to Lord Hannay, has had a remarkable career as a politician and political scientist. He was a Member of Parliament from 1966 to 77. then served as advisor to Roy Jenkins in the European Commission in Brussels. He was Professor of Politics at the Universities of Sussex and Sheffield, and is a former principal of Mansfield. He's a prolific and influential writer, and in a recent article in The New Statesman, which many of you would have read. He examined the consequences for the national identities of England, Scotland and Wales if Britain should leave the European Union. We thank Lord Hannay and David Markman for coming today and for launching what we know will be a stimulating and, hopefully, a controversial seminar. Now, may I invite Lord Hanna if he would come speak to us.
2: Well, thank you very much for that introduction Um, and uh, thank you also for the honour of asking me to be here on this uh, beautiful morning in Oxford uh, to celebrate, uh, in a way, the life of someone who undoubtedly, if he had survived, would have played an important and constructive role in uh, European uh, politics and diplomacy. Uh, I always hesitate a bit about saying what people would have done if they uh, hadn't unfortunately died, but I don't think there's much doubt on this occasion. Um, Although it's, I'm sure, a sign of what a what a very weak historian I am, that I should venture onto that dangerous ground. I gave up any <coughs> uh, belief that I was a historian rather early in my career when I was also at Oxford at New College, just down the road from here. And I was unwise enough to say to my tutor one morning uh, something about we historians. And he looked at me and he said, uh, You are a student of history, I am a historian. <laughs> So I've never had any illusions since that day. Uh, But fortunately, in any case, on this occasion, you've asked me to look at the future rather than exclusively at the past. But before being so foolhardy uh, as to launch myself into uh, speculation about the future, which you've asked me to do, uh, it usually makes sense to glance back at the past History doesn't often repeat itself exactly, but it's usually possible to discern certain patterns of behaviour and to draw certain conclusions from them as to how things might proceed in the period ahead. Now, Britain and Germany, as two of the largest member states in what is now known as the European Union, have always, from the very outset, been crucial players in that organisation's history and that always, and they always will be, even if at some point in the future Britain were to be so unwise as to withdraw from membership as it did so foolishly and so damagingly in the early years of the venture. This mutual relationship within Europe has also been a crucial one as Britain struggled to overcome two French vetoes and sought to correct the budgetary inequity which confronted it some years after joining. And now it is prey to the demons of Euroscepticism and faces at least the prospect, although not yet by any means the certainty, of an in-out referendum in 2017. But even if this mutual relationship within Europe may have been crucial, it hasn't been an easy one. Uh, Indeed, it's been dogged by a good deal of misunderstanding and irritation on both sides, and the least that can be said is that the scope for those two sentiments has not yet been exhausted. Uh, In the early years, uh, German irritation that Britain chose to stand outside the coal and steel community, and then the economic community, was fully matched by Britain's misunderstanding of the real long-term significance of those two steps. Importantly, Germany was not deterred by Britain's absence from pressing ahead with a project whose primordial importance in healing the wounds of successive confrontations with France was what mattered to Germany before all else. A pattern was established there which has not yet been broken and which we British ignore at our peril. One of the by-products of Britain missing that bus, along with surrendering the opportunity To shape Europe's emerging policies was, I would speculate, that the Franco-German relationship based on the treaty signed in 1963 took on a much more exclusive character than it might otherwise have done. The chance to build a triangular relationship at the heart of Europe was lost. Then, through the years of Britain's travails with French vetoes, there was much dissatisfaction in London that Germany wasn't prepared to take a stronger line. Much of this, in my view, was misplaced, since the scope for Germany to take a stronger line was not very evident when all decisions had to be taken by unanimity. In the end, Britain had to strike a deal directly with France, as happened when Prime Minister Heath went to meet President Pompidou in Paris uh, in May 1971. And we tended to underestimate how much Germany's unwavering support for British membership in the years that preceded that meeting actually contributed to a successful outcome. One could say the same about Britain's irritation with Germany during the great budgetary struggle led by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s, which tends to overlook the fact that Germany agreed to bear and still bears the lion's share of the cost of the British rebate. Well, so much for some of the tensions which have marred the British-German relationship over Europe in the past. They certainly shouldn't overshadow the major achievements which Britain and Germany have jointly scored in the 40 years of Britain's membership. The transformation of the European community from a customs union to the largest single market in the world. The accession of new member states which has healed and is still healing so many of the wounds of the 20th century, which has turned the European project into a genuinely continent-wide venture. The successive global trade rounds, which have freed up trade on a worldwide basis, fueling economic growth. The emergence of the European Union and its Member States as the largest donor of official development aid in the world and as a major force in helping the developing nations. The leadership which Europe has given to the attempt to respond effectively to the challenge of man-made climate change. These are massive achievements, and they owe a lot to the partnership of Britain and Germany within the European Union. Now, from the 1980s onwards, Britain and Germany have worked constructively together in a much less prominent and well-recognised way towards the fashioning of elements of what is called variable geometry within the European Union, the recognition that not all policies need to apply in an identical and uniform manner across the whole Union. That's the case with the Euro, of course, with Schengen, with Justice and Home Affairs legislation, and now quite recently with the first emerging steps towards a banking union. The concept is now embedded in the treaties, not least in the provisions for enhanced cooperation between a linked group of members, which enabled the logjam over the European patent to be finally broken quite recently. There is surely, I would suggest, scope for a further development of those concepts, so long as the core provisions underpinning the four freedoms and the single market are not undermined. Well, now I can no longer postpone a glance at the future, Opaque, though the view necessarily is at the moment when the policies of a new German government following September's election have not yet definitively taken shape and when the outcome of Britain's next general election is still shrouded in mystery. I'll begin with the Eurozone because it's not a serious matter for doubt that that will be at the heart of the policy preoccupations of whatever coalition government comes to power in Germany. And it's equally not a matter of doubt that Germany's policy prescriptions in this area will be crucial to the future of the whole Eurozone. Britain, for better or for worse, has decided to take no part in this venture, but we do have a massive stake in its continuing success. If the Eurozone were to break up, non-members as well as members of it would be grievously damaged, and I wouldn't stake much money myself on the single market surviving unscathed. So we need, I would suggest, to play a firmly supportive role, only seeking to ensure the integrity of single market decision-making and not repeating the aberration of December 2011 when we picked a totally unnecessary quarrel over the Fiscal Compact Treaty and also tried to change the decision-making process on single market measures to our advantage as a price for going along with the measures needed to rescue Eurozone stability. Beyond that, what I believe Britain and Germany should be proactively championing is a far-reaching positive agenda for reform on a Europe-wide basis. This would need to include completion of the single market, which is really critical if European competitivity is to be improved with further steps on services on energy and in the digital area. We need also to press ahead steadily but hard-headedly with further accession negotiations to consolidate the fragile peace in the Balkans and to keep open the door to two of Europe's largest eastern neighbours and largest economies of the future, Turkey and the Ukraine. We should be seeking treaties to bring about uh, freer and fairer world trade, both through bilateral agreements with Canada, the United States, Japan and India, and also by reviving the multilateral global negotiations uh, through the World Trade Organization at the ministerial meeting in Bali this month and thereafter. We should be trying to bridge the gap between us, between Britain and Germany, over Europe's aspirations as an actor on the world stage and over its defence cooperation in an age of budgetary austerity so that we do not simply become marginalised as the power relationships amongst the great powers of the world between the other main actors shift and rearrange themselves. We should be working together to ensure that Europe does not cease to give a lead in the worldwide efforts to combat climate change, as it seems at risk of doing in recent months. We should be developing a more effective role for national parliaments in the shaping of European legislation and making a greater reality of the principle of subsidiarity so that legislation and action at a European level only takes place when there is a real need, when there is real added value from it, and when the best results cannot be achieved at member state or regional level. Now, that is a huge positive agenda, but it is, I would suggest, a worthwhile one and I would also suggest that it is one on which Britain and Germany should be able to co cooperate wholeheartedly. Are there risks and threats to it? There most certainly are. One is that Britain will prefer to focus on an agenda festooned with red lines, taboos, and no go areas designed to appease those unappeasable Eurosceptics who will not be satisfied until and unless Britain withdraws from the European Union altogether. If any negotiation which the British government elected in 2015 undertakes is simply directed to the repatriation of existing European responsibilities and to the creation of new areas of British exceptionalism, then I fear that will fail and that it would certainly open a gulf between Britain and Germany. Another risk is if Britain seeks to rely exclusively on the relationship with Germany to achieve its European objectives. I've noticed an unhealthy tendency in the press in Britain, particularly in the Eurosceptic press, which is most of it, to latch on to the faintest hint of support in Germany for Britain's European objectives and to assume that Germany is now going to pull Britain's chestnuts from the fire and that Germany's undoubtedly sincere desire to see Britain remain in the European Union can be leveraged into support for our objectives, however extreme they are. The experience of the 1960s, which I spoke about a little earlier, and which I believe to be as valid now as then, would indicate that any such hopes are doomed to be frustrated. Above all, we must not neglect, as I fear we may be at risk of neglecting, That we need to work closely with France and with all the other member states if we are to make progress towards our objectives and not end up sleepwalking towards the exit. There is another risk too and that is if those who want to see a more federal Europe press for yet another general revision and expansion of the European treaties. My own view is there have already been too many and too frequent such revisions in the past and that that is part of the current malaise that afflicts many countries in Europe. While I recognise that such protagonists of a federal Europe have an absolute right to press their views and have entirely honourable aims, I do fear that any move in that direction could be damaging to the European Union as a whole and perhaps even fatal to Britain's hopes of remaining a full and constructive member of it. There is no question but that in such circumstances we would have to hold a referendum and that such a referendum would inevitably be an in-out test of our continued membership. And I'm not too sanguine that it would be won in those circumstances. That's to say, if we were being asked to ratify a new treaty which went much further than the existing treaties. Far better, I would suggest, to ensure that any electoral test that may take place is based on the sort of policy positive policy agenda I've sketched out and which requires no change to the treaties rather than on another round of institutional wrangling well I've tried your your patience long enough I conclude with the thought that the uh, stakes for effective German and British cooperation over Europe have never been higher and so could be the rewards not just for Britain and Germany but for Europe as a whole I tend normally to deplore, as I said at the very outset, speculation about what people no longer with us would have called for had they still been alive. But in this case, I do think that the prospect I've sketched out would have appealed to Adam von Trott, to his vision of a Europe at peace with itself and setting a good example to the wider world. Thank you very much.
3: Well, Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great uh, pleasure and indeed a privilege to follow Lord Hannay. Uh, he doesn't know this, but he's one of my heroes because he was one of that dauntless band of British diplomats who actually got us in to the European community as it then was all those years ago. It's also I, also an enormous pleasure to me that to know that Ken Sears, uh, of Mansfield College uh, is here too because it was actually Ken who started this whole business in the first place. When I was principal of Mansfield, he came to me uh, with a manuscript of what became in the end a published biography uh, of Adam von Trott and he and I went together to Berlin uh, in uh, I can't quite remember when, it was in the late 90s anyway, not long after I'd become principal and to meet Clarita von trot uh, Adam's widow, in her flat in Berlin. And it was an absolutely inspirational meeting, I know for Ken and for me as well. Now, I largely agree with what uh, Lord Hannay said, not completely, that would be very tedious, but uh, I'm not really going to take issue with him uh, on anything that he said. I want to look at the questions implicit in our title of our seminar from a completely different angle. I don't want to talk about the future of Europe seen as a collection of nation states. I want to focus on what seems to me to be an infinitely more complex series of questions that that approach uh, ignores. Uh, I was incredibly lucky uh, to study history at this university under AJP Taylor, uh, coruscating, provocative, occasionally absurd, uh, but wonderful tutor. One of the things that Taylor taught me is that the conventional language of diplomatic history, of which he was, by the way, a master, that treats nation states as though they were somehow homogeneous blocks of political matter is, in fact, profoundly false. Germany, Britain, Russia, France are convenient shorthand, nothing more. To understand the Anglo German relationship, which we're supposed to be looking at today, to understand the forces that will shape Europe's future, I think we must look at deeper factors that that shorthand can't handle. Let me begin with Britain, one of the two countries that this seminar is supposed to be about. I'll start with an assertion which you may think utterly preposterous. Britain, in quotation marks, As conventionally understood, no longer exists. What used to be the Union State, the state created by the Tudor statutes that incorporated Wales into England, uh, by the Acts of Union of 1707 that merged the Scottish and Anglo English sorry, Anglo-Welsh parliaments into one United Kingdom parliament and the Treaty of 1921 that gave independence to the 26 counties of Southern Ireland and kept the six counties of Northern Ireland within the United Kingdom. That union state, I suggest, has been consigned to the dustbin of history. For the first time since the early 18th century, an elected Scottish Parliament now sits in Edinburgh. For the first time ever, an elected Assembly, whose Welsh name Senedd, actually means Parliament, sits in the vibrant Welsh capital of Cardiff, which happens to be my native city Uh, I'm not saying I am responsible for the vibrancy but I'd like to think that my father had something to do with it many many years ago the devolved administrations and parliaments in the three non English nations of the United Kingdom now enjoy considerable and steadily increasing autonomy. They may well be as autonomous or perhaps even more autonomous than the German lender. In Scotland and Wales, both public policy and popular sentiment are diverging more and more from the England dominated UK. The um, Sorry, The process has gone on steadily since the devolved administrations were set up. At the moment, as we speak, politicians north of the border are getting ready for a referendum which will certainly take place next year. A year from now it will have taken place on Scottish secession from the United Kingdom. The secessionists may or may not win, we don't know, but those who think they're bound to lose should reflect on the fact that Alex Salmond, Scotland's First Minister, is arguably the most charismatic and also the most guileful political leader in the United Kingdom. Don't bet on him losing. I don't say you should bet on him winning, by the way. I'm a very cautious person with my money. Um, And more interesting in a way, even if secession is defeated in that referendum, it is virtually certain that the end result will be what is sometimes called Devo Max. A rather horrible term, but it's inescapable in this discussion. And what it means is that, in effect, Scotland would be in control, Scottish Parliament and Scottish Government would be in control of the whole gamut of domestic policy, leaving only Foreign Affairs and Defence, to the United Kingdom, Government and Parliament. Now, what has this got to do with the future of Europe and the relationship between Britain and Germany? I think the answer to that question lies in the evolving relationship between England and the non-English nations of the UK. The Euroscepticism that Lord Hannay mentioned, I think he's a bit kind to call it Euroscepticism, as a matter of fact I would call it Europhobia, is an overwhelmingly English, Phenomenon. The uh, polls, and of course, polls are never to be trusted completely, (coughs) suggest that as of now, a comfortable majority of the Scots are in favour of staying in the European Union. Welsh opinion is evenly divided. That's less important, I think, than the much more profound fact that Scots and Welsh people are unfazed by the notion of multiple identities, which is implied by membership of the European Union. Lord Hannay was right, of course, in saying (coughs) that EU membership does not mean that national identities have to be, in some way, given up. But what it does mean... Is that an extra European identity has to be added to them north of the border and west of offers dyke that presents no problems for centuries Scots and Welsh people have been both British and Scottish and Welsh to be at one and the same time Scottish or Welsh and British and European seems quite natural to them, just as it seems natural to barbarians to be European and German and barbarian. It's not wise, as Lord Hannay said, to predict election results long before they 've happened. But I would hazard the guess that if there is a UK wide referendum in out referendum on whether we should stay in the union or not Scotland and Wales will vote to stay in if the Scottish and Welsh votes for staying in were overwhelmed by by a vote of the much more populous English to leave that would pose a really profound crisis in the Union State in the United Kingdom I think the United Kingdom in that situation would break up Scotland and Wales would have voted to stay in and they wouldn't tolerate being kept out by English votes now I don't want that to happen I would like to see a federal Britain in a federalizing Europe but if the English are determined to cut off their collective nose despite their collective face, so be it. Now that leads me to a more complex point. So far, I've spoken as if the autonomist pressures that exist in the United Kingdom is a purely British phenomenon. It's not. For Wales and Scotland, read. Brittany, Corsica, the Basque Country, Catalonia, Galicia, Lombardy, Flanders, and Wallonia. And that's just in Western Europe. If you add in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, the list is longer and more fraught. Slovakia, Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo spring to mind. About the only large country in Western Europe has not uh, seen autonomous pressures of this kind is actually Germany. And the reason is very simple and straightforward because Germany is a federal state and always has been ever since it emerged a little bit timidly from the catastrophe of the Second World War. Germany apart, I believe that what we're seeing is quite extraordinary we're seeing the re-emergence of the pre-modern palimpsest of bishoprics, city-states, principalities, duchies, and so forth that were pushed into the historical deep freeze by the modern states that emerged in the 17th and 18th centuries. Now, I think a central theme Of the cultural history of postmodern Europe, the Europe that we actually live in, is a kind of neo medievalism. The return of the local, the familiar, the small scale, and the particular in the face of the homogenizing pressures of the global capitalist free market and the pretensions of the increasingly sclerotic nation-states which doused Europe in blood twice in the last century and which no longer embody the identities of a growing number of their peoples. The great challenge now facing Europe, I believe it's greater than the familiar challenges of the Eurozone crisis and the need to remain Competitive in the global marketplace is how to make a reality of what is sometimes called globalism, how to combine the global and the local, how to transcend state sovereignty through supranational integration on the European level, while at the same time creating centers of power closer to home than the classical European nation-state has ever been or can ever be. This is where Germany, with its subtle symbiosis between central and local power, has most to teach the European, of which she has been a cornerstone. Ever since it came into existence, I only hope that the rest of us have the wit and will to follow the German example.
2: Thank you.